as we consider the great things before us this morning in this passage of John chapter 10. As we begin reading, we're going to read from verse 1 all the way down through verse 30. And as we're considering this morning, uh, Christ and our atonement. It's really His atonement, but it applies to us, and we're going to consider this tremendous uh, truth that we have in Christ. Hear the Word of God, beginning at verse 1, John chapter 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration that they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hiring flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep. I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore there was a division among Again, among the Jews, because of these sayings, and many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now it was the feast of the dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Our gracious Father, what a blessed passage this is. What a tremendous truth as your sheep to know the truths that are herein given to us. We pray that the Spirit of God would fall fresh upon the preaching and upon our minds and transform our minds to be more in the image of Christ's mind with His knowledge and transform our hearts to be more of His heart into that original righteousness and holiness from which we fell. And from glory to glory, may this day be glorious. May this message be glorious. May our understanding and perception and receiving of it be glorious. Because of our glorious Christ, because of the glorious Jesus who gave himself for the sheep. 
And we pray that the Spirit of God would give the application that we need this morning. Encouragement and strength and power and driving out all of our our fears and our anxieties and our cares, knowing that our hope is in the Good Shepherd who leads His flock out and cares for His own. May we hear His voice clearly today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. During the summer semester, when I was in seminary, back a long, long time ago, and the classes were a bit more informal and casual, our professor, as was his custom, would come into class, and he would look over the class, and on that particular Friday morning, he asked, are we all here? To which we looked around and confirmed, yes, we're all here, not a one is absent. And he seized the opportunity to bring us to that particular passage where we were studying in the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians as he then began to express the term all. We are all here. Because terms like that, like all or world, are determined in their own context by the limit of application that is intended. I remember that Friday very well, and with that little piece of information that he just opened the class with, it drove me that weekend to study out Christ and to study His atonement. And for whom did Christ die? And for the entire weekend, I thought through that. I searched the Scriptures. Did Christ die for all people indiscriminately, or did He die only for the elect? I was not at that time of the persuasion that Christ had died only for the elect. In fact, that was a a, a really new concept for me. So I went home and studied the atonement all weekend, and when I came back to class on Monday, I informed my professor uh, with tears in my eyes. I said, I've been thinking through Christ and His atonement all weekend long. And I said, I'm just really more uncertain today on for whom he died, except for one thing, I am very certain he died for me. And when I think about that, I still get choked up. And he says, yes. If you study the atonement, it'll never leave you the same. Somehow, that weekend study brought the atoning work of Jesus Christ into such a close and personal experience that it moved me in my heart in a way that I will never forget. That's why I can clearly remember that particular day. It was on a Friday, the weekend that came, and the Monday that followed. The message this morning may be a little unusual in in how maybe I unfold it, but in a sense, I want to just take you on a journey as we consider the atonement of Jesus Christ and for whom He died upon the cross. And as we consider Christ's atonement upon the cross, many, including myself, in that day, believed that Christ died for all men indiscriminately. What I'd like for us to consider is a little journey this morning that I hope that if we can consider these things to the degree that it will move our hearts like it did mine that particular weekend, then this message, in my opinion, will be successful. May God, through His Spirit, open our hearts that we may see what great things our God has done for us in Christ Jesus. As we considered... This, I have, was coming from a perspective that Christ had died for all people, died for the whole world. In fact, that was the perspective that I'd heard in church all my life. I heard it at missions conferences. I heard it in evangelistic meetings. 
And it seemed very clear, so there was no reason to really question it further, at least until I considered a little more deeply what it all meant. The question, for whom did Christ die, brings us more into the very nature of the atonement, and then to its extent. In other words, answering the question, for whom did Christ die, raises other greater questions. Why did He die? What really happened when He died on the cross? What was really accomplished there and then? How does His death on the cross affect my sins versus another person whom will never come to believe? Is there any difference? Is there no difference? So a host of questions began to emerge as I simply considered the topic with a bit more thoughtfulness. And then I came to passages like this before us in John chapter 10 that seemed to, in some way, contradict my previous position. And so I know I had to delve into these things more deeply. And therein began a bit of a, of a, a long-term study as I began thinking truly for whom did Christ die? It was probably three years later, three years, that I actually came to a position that we now know as a particular redemption or limited atonement or that Christ died only for the elect. The passage before us, first of all, shows a distinction between Jesus' sheep and all others. And there's a beautiful thing that is going on in this passage. This passage has meant something very special to me on a number of occasions in my ministry as an as a, as a under-shepherd and as a shepherd of God's people. He has brought me back to this many times as I think about my relationship to God's sheep. Also knowing that I'm first a sheep before I am a shepherd. In verses 1-5, through five, Jesus is making the point that there is an intimate relationship between a sheep, between His sheep, and Him as the shepherd. And He's bringing this illustration to bear. And at least twice He says, my own sheep, my own sheep. He emphasizes that personal pronoun about the sheep being His own. And throughout this passage, there is this distinction between Christ's sheep and all others. And he speaks about his own sheep in ways that he does not speak about all others. In fact, he is actually speaking to the Pharisees and to those in Solomon's porch of the temple on that day who are not hearing him and not believing him. And he is indicating and implying, you are not my sheep. So there's this distinction. Verse 3 says, to him the doorkeepers opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. The sheep are his personally. And there's a definite ownership and distinction about these animals from all others. And there is a limit of application drawn here because it does not apply to all people universally. The sheep know the voice of their owner and they do not recognize the voice of strangers. They will not follow them. What Jesus does in this passage is He makes a clear distinction between all those who are His sheep, His own, and everybody else. Verse 8, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. The sheep have been given the ability to discern the shepherd's voice. And imposters and false shepherds and sheep stealers will come, but the sheep will not hear them. They know the Lord's voice. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by them. There's this relationship, a personal relationship of an experiential knowledge between the shepherd and the sheep. I was going over this message this morning, and the sun illuminated the sky, and it was not dark any longer. And I turned around out of my office window, and I look, and <laughs> there are two sheep which have been allowed to graze throughout the whole yard in the winter month. And there's these two sheep right outside my window just looking at me. I'm like, wouldn't that be wonderful 
if they just came right over here to me. So I watched them for a little while, and they just sat there and looked at me like a, a, a deer about to run off, and, and they just looked at me. I'm like, well, it's because they can't hear my voice. And so I go outside, and I'm thinking, this would be a great illustration. They just came over to me, and I called out to them, and they just looked at me. And then I realized, well, I'm not their shepherd. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not their shepherd. They didn't come to me. They looked a bit fearful, and then they kind of backed up, and they walked away. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's not a good illustration for this sermon, but or maybe it is. Maybe it is. I don't have a relationship with those sheep. If Abby had gone out there, that might have been quite different. I'm sure it probably would have. I am very convinced that God created sheep as dumb and defenseless as they are to be specifically the illustration he would use to show us what we are like and what he has done for us. So as we consider this distinction, even down in verse 26, you do not believe... I want you to look at verse 26 if you have your Bibles, but if you don't, listen to this. You do not believe me because... You are not my sheep. And he's speaking there to those who are not hearing him, who are refuting what he is saying, who, is, who are at odds with him and challenging him. And he says, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. And notice here that the sheep, only the sheep can and will believe. Being a sheep enables you to believe and not vice versa. Got that? Those who are sheep are those that the Father has given to the Son. Verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand, out of my Father's hand, out of my hand, out of my Father's hand. No one can snatch them. The Father has given them to me. I and my Father are one. It takes us right back to the unconditional election in Jesus Christ that the Father has given to the Son, and the Son is faithful to redeem them and to save them because they are His sheep. They're the father's sheep, and he will not allow anyone or anything to come against their salvation. The passage teaches here that it's only God's elect that the Father had given to the Son that are the sheep. And the sheep believe because they are sheep. And others do not believe because they are not sheep. The passage reveals that there are sheep and others who are not Christ's sheep. The sheep are the ones that the Father has given to the Son, and yet these are not all people. In fact, Jesus is speaking directly to people who are not His sheep, and they did not, therefore, believe. The sheep hear Christ. And his voice, because the Spirit has worked inside so that Jesus is known, and we have this Abba Father testimony going on within. We hear Jesus' voice, we hear the Good Shepherd, and we know him. He knows us. And the sheep believe him, and the sheep follow him. The Bible often uses the metaphor of sheep for God's true people, opposed to those who are not his people. He distinguishes in Matthew 25 the sheep from the goats. And in the end, he's going to separate those two. Christ knows truly who are his. And you know if you've got a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The Spirit will bear testimony of this. He wants you to know. He wants you to be assured. And you can be assured that you are his sheep. If you believe him and you trusted him, Word says you're a sheep because non sheep can't do that. It also discriminates between the sheep and the wolves, Matthew 10 16. And then we also have the lost sheep of the house of Israel contrasted against dogs in Matthew 15. 
We see a distinction in this passage between sheep and all others. So with that distinction of God's people, which he is using in a metaphorical way of being sheep here, where the good shepherd has this relationship, there is a distinction between sheep and all others. But with that distinction that this passage makes of Jesus or the sheep and all others, it additionally reveals that it is only for the sheep that Jesus died and atoned for their sins and saved them. Now let's walk back through this passage. And just see all those things that the shepherd does for the sheep. Very quickly, verse 3. He calls them by name and he leads them. Verse 4. He brings out his own sheep and he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Verse 5. He gives his sheep discernment not to follow strangers. They only know the voice of the true shepherd. Verse 9, the sheep enter into salvation in Him. They go through the door. They find pasture. And they have all the things that, they, that sheep want and what they need. Verse 10 and 11, Jesus came in order to give His sheep life and that they may have it minimally and just only a little bit and only just a tiny bit of life. No! He came to give them life and to give it to them abundantly, the Scripture says. Over the top. Where you are just filled with the goodness of Christ. And the love that God has for you in Christ, your mind cannot comprehend. Here we have the extent of the atonement as well as its nature. See, Jesus gave His life as an atonement for sins. For the sins of His sheep so that they may have life abundantly. And there's an implication in this passage to have life through His giving life atonement that there is something before His sheep did not have and they did not have life before they had the shepherd. They had death. Because He came to give them life. They didn't even have a little life. This echoes and harmonizes well with passages like Ephesians 2.1 where it speaks that we are dead in trespasses and sins. I think the next verse goes on to say we are children of God's wrath. And it goes on all the way down to verse 5, but God who is abundant and rich in His mercy. See, we didn't have life. We're all dead. We're all bound in our trespasses and sins. That's total depravity. But God, before that, took and the Father chose in Christ those whom He would save. And now, in the course of redemption, Jesus is coming to do exactly just that. To give His sheep life. And to give it to Him abundantly. And so verse 14, we see there's an intimate relationship of love and care between the shepherd and his sheep. To the extent, verse 15, that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And here again, we see the extent of the atonement as it pertains only to the sheep. And again in verse 17, the shepherd will die for his sheep. Sheep are the ones who believe the shepherd, verse 26. And they do so because they are God's sheep. As mentioned earlier, the basis for this is the Father's unconditional election, as we saw in verse 29. It's the Father who gives the sheep to the Son. And those who the Father gives to the Son, the Son will in no wise cast out, but He will save them to the uttermost. In verse 27, the sheep hear the shepherd, and so they follow him. Verse 28, the shepherd gives them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of the shepherd's hand. It was, after all, the father that had given the sheep to the shepherd, so no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand, because the shepherd and the father are one, and they completely 
save the sheep. Now that is the plan of God. He will save His people from their sins, Matthew 1.21 says. It is clear from the passage that Jesus was not laying down His life for everyone, but only for the sheep who are the ones that the Father had given to the Son. He only has died for the elect. Not for everyone indiscriminately. Well, what about all those passages that suggest that Christ died for all, or that He died for the world? Well, that was the point my professor was making that day when he says, are we all here? And we looked around and we said, yeah, we're all here. See, every time a term all is used in the Scripture, or even with us, it is always limited in its context to its application. The same is true with the word world. So all in world are things that we have to take in its context and understand how the Bible itself is using them in that context. And if we do not do that, we will do great injustice to the Word and we will actually blaspheme God in some passages if we merely apply all, meaning all indiscriminately. You may have heard some preachers, well, meaning all means all and that's all. I'd love to be able to just bracket all of that and just parse it all out and help him to realize he just limited the application to what he was speaking. Um, when we consider the, word, the term world, did not Christ come to save the world? He did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. Well, briefly, there are seven senses in which the term world alone is used in the Scriptures. And I want to just very quickly go through those seven senses so that you can understand that in every one of those, that the context or the application is limited by the context. You'll get this. You talk like this all the time. We do this all the time, but for some reason we haven't thought through the atonement enough to know that this atonement does not apply indiscriminately. The first one is the world was used in, is used in Scripture in some places for God's created order, such as in Acts 17. God who made the world and everything in it. This is God's created order that it's speaking of. The second sense would be the world system. The fallen world system under the sway of the wicked one. For it tells us in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now if we do not see the distinction in the senses of the term world, we got a big problem with a verse like this because God so loves the world and He's telling us that we are not to do so. So you see this, I mean... Just because a, a word is used, we don't just rubber stamp it into every uh, definition or every occasion that it's used. The third time it's used, or the third sense in which it's used, is the entire human race. And this is the time, in only one of seven senses, that it is used this way. But sometimes people want to make it all the time this way. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the, all the world may become guilty before God. Now I tell you what, that is every one of us indiscriminately. That is everyone who has ever lived since Adam indiscriminately. Save one, and that's Jesus. A fourth sense in which the word world is used, it is used of all humanity except for believers. In John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. A fifth sense is it is used in terms of Gentiles in contrast to the Jews, as in Romans 11 when it says, now if their fall, meaning 
the Jews' rejection of Christ is riches for the world and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. You can go back and look at that in the context, but he's actually talking about the world, meaning the Gentile world, as opposed to the Jews who rejected Jesus. And then six, a sixth sense. It can mean men out of every tribe and nation, but not everyone as a whole. John twelve nineteen said, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing? Look, the whole world has gone after him. That's very analogous to when the Olympics were in Atlanta in 1996. And I was living in Atlanta at the time. We just had moved there, and the Olympics came. And in that year, they had this big banner downtown at the, at the big park. And it says, Atlanta welcomes the world. And we knew that some 5 billion people wasn't going to come crammed in there at that moment, not to mention the billions of people that have ever lived or will ever live. You know, it's not talking about... We, com- we just we knew. From every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, they're going to be represented to some degree here this week. And the last sense it speaks of are believers only. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says... That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. They're speaking about the world as believers, minus the others. So there are seven senses in which the world is used. So the next time you see one of those passages, it seemed to be universal, and it says, look at the context, look at what it is really saying. So when we come to an occurrence like that, we have to understand the context of what it's being referred to, which brings me lastly to the very nature of the atonement and all of those why questions and what did it accomplish and all of the deeper truths here. And this is where really the rubber meets the road in it all. What exactly did the death of Jesus on the cross do? Now Christians have answered this question in one of two ways. I say Christians because there's a lot of other options out there, but I would not put them in the Christian category. Christians have answered the question, what did Jesus' death on the cross do in one of two ways? The first way is they would suggest that Christ died for all people to make salvation possible for all people. Or, second, Christ died only for the elect in order to actually save them. Those are your only two possibilities. If we take the former position, along with the majority of the church in America today, and is it not my, my burden, is it not my, my task as a preacher to simply get the gospel right with you? First and foremost, just the gospel. Can I just explain the gospel to you? Is it the gospel that says, it, can it do something for you as a believer today? Yes, and if we just have to get the gospel right. And the majority of the church in America does not have the gospel right. I just hope you can get the gospel right. Because in it is the power of God unto salvation. But if we take the former position that Christ died for all people to make salvation possible for all people, which is the majority position in the church in America today, and we say that Christ died for everyone in order to make salvation possible for everyone, we have an atonement that only creates a possibility for people to get saved, but it does not assure the salvation of any. Nor does it make the death of Jesus on the cross an efficacious saving work. If Christ died for everyone to make salvation possible for everyone, then His work on the cross merely creates a state of possibility. It creates a possibility. 
But it still leaves something in the person to come to Jesus and to believe in Him in order to become a sheep. And they reverse the order back in verse 26 or wherever it was, that they know me because they are my sheep. They believe me because they are my sheep. But this particular scenario leaves it within the person to come to Jesus and to believe Him in order to become a sheep. And the problem with this is if we understand total depravity, everyone in that state of bondage to sin, the chief of which is unbelief. The root cause of all of your sin and even your very sin nature is unbelief. In other words, if left for us merely to come to Jesus and to believe, no one would ever do so. We simply do not have it in us to believe the Gospel apart from being loosed from our bondage, apart from God's grace in our lives, apart from the Spirit of God working in regeneration and calling us to Christ. In our fallen condition, we are bound in a state of unbelief. And we need something to save us, even from our unbelief and our disbelief and our doubts. So that we can come to Christ. People usually do not consider unbelief as a sin. But in fact, it's the root of all disobedience and it's the very heart of where our problem is. Doubt. How many of you continue to doubt? We all struggle still with these things. That's why we need the gospel. Not just yesterday, but today and, and, and tomorrow when we wake up and the new mercies of God are there. We need God to save us out of doubt and unbelief. And the good news of the gospel is because you're his sheep, he will apply that work of redemption to you. And he's not leaving it merely for you to muster it up in your soul to come to him. He is taking care of that. See, doubt and unbelief are the very things that atonement is needed for and for salvation. The atoning work of Jesus Christ is the very act of God in removing sin and appeasing the wrath of God for it. So, for whomever Christ died, their sins are removed. The wrath of God for them has been appeased. The very problem between God and man has been taken care of upon the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, the, the death of Christ upon the cross was not merely creating a state of possibility. It was a saving work. It was a liberating work. It was not a work that merely made salvation possible, but it went beyond possibility and it accomplished what it set out to do. If Christ had died for all people universally, everyone by necessity would be saved because the very issue that stands in the way between God and sinners has been dealt with. We know from Scriptures not everyone will be saved, including some of those Pharisees and the religious crowd that day to whom Jesus spoke. The very nature of the atonement is a saving work. When Jesus went to the cross, it was an atoning work for whom it was intended. It was going to accomplish the very design that God had purposed it was going to remove all of the sin from those that the Father had given to the Son. It was going to appease the wrath of God for those very ones that God was angry with because of their sins. It was going to save God's sheep out of a state of unbelief. And it was going to accomplish all of the work of redemption that the elect needed eternally to be saved, and to have life, and to have life abundantly. That's what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to merely make it a possibility. He didn't come with everybody indiscriminately in mind. He came with you in mind. 
Because He knew you before the foundation of the world, and He knew you by name. He knew you personally, and He knew all the sins that you were going to commit. And He put them all upon His back, and He went to the cross, having nailed it to the cross, and He died for you. And the Spirit applied it to you, and you believe because you're sheep. He died for all that unbelief, and He died for that incarceration to sin. He died for the bondage that you were in to liberate you so that you can go in and out and find pasture. And He's going to lead you there, and you're going to know His voice, and you're just simply going to follow it. He's not going to get behind you and drive you like a sheepdog. He's going to get before you like a shepherd and walk, and you're going to follow it. Let me tell you what, if that, if, if Christ went to the cross and he died for everybody indiscriminately, everybody would be saved. In the same kind of way that when he called Lazarus, Lazarus come forth. If he hadn't have called him by name, some preachers said everybody would have come out from the grace. <laughs> this work of the atoning work of Jesus upon the cross accomplished something. It did not create merely a possibility. It was potent. It did what it was designed to do. And if that saving work was done for everybody, there would be a universal salvation. Because the nature of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross included a propitiatory death. A propitiation is that idea of removing the wrath of God, appeasing it, satisfying it for the righteous judgment due to the sinner. But Jesus paid for that. And as the Corinthians said, for he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him is the complete substitutionary atonement. We have had our sins laid upon Jesus and he dies for them. The very perfect righteousness that he has, he has given to us so that when we appear before God, we appear in Christ's righteousness and all of our sins have been nailed to the cross and have been buried with him. Complete substitution. That's what happened at the cross. That's what happens in the atonement. And for whomever that happens, sin is no longer an issue. It also includes the forgiveness of sins. The work of the cross provides the forgiveness for whom it was designed. As far as the east is from the west, He's removed our sins from us. It provided also redemption. And Christ purchased everything necessary, including the grace of regeneration and the gift of faith. All of that was acquired and purchased and redeemed in the shedding of Jesus' blood upon the cross. It was while we we're yet at enmity with Christ and sinners against Him where we nailed Him to the cross that He loved us and died for us and saved us. Quite in spite all of us and all of our sins, it was a redemptive, powerful, atoning work. And it was a saving work. It did accomplish something. Something there that day happened and something there that day happened with you and mine 2,000 years later. For we have been buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, and there was a mystic union that we have been placed into Christ in a way that we do not understand that when He died upon the cross, there's a sense where we died with Him when He raised. We were raised with Him. Therefore, the life that we now live, we no longer live in the flesh, but we live in Christ. And it is no longer I that liveth, but Christ who liveth in me. Because that work did something for us. It didn't just change a state of mankind from impossibility to one of possibility. It was real. It was powerful. And God wants you to know the very power that raised up Jesus from the grave by the Spirit has been given to you. Now go and find your pasture. Follow the shepherd's voice. And love the life of abundance that He has given to you. That's the gospel. It doesn't merely make something possible. It does something. It did something specifically for you. For you personally. Unlike the others in the world. 
There's a huge difference, a huge difference between making something merely a possibility and actually accomplishing something. If my son needs a work truck, don't get your hopes up, son. This is just an illustration. I actually have three. If my son needs a work truck to be successful in his work, and the truck costs $5,000, but he only has $100 to his name, if I come along and give him the balance of $4,900, I now make it possible for him to buy the truck. Is everybody tracking with me? I make it possible for him to go buy the truck for himself. But while I've made it possible for him to buy the truck, he still must act himself to procure it. He has to redeem the truck with the supply of my possibility. That's radically different than if my son had no money and no direction and no hope, and I come along and I buy a truck outright for him, I give him the keys, I take care of the gas and pay for all the insurance, provide a job and a purpose for him to do. I have redeemed everything he needs, given him purpose in life when he didn't have a cent to his name. Those things are radically different. As the hymn writer has penned, Jesus paid it all. All. What Jesus did upon the cross was so powerful and it did not fail in any bit of its design. There is not one soul in hell that Jesus died for. He died to save his people. He did not die to merely make it possible, but he died to accomplish something for those for whom it was intended. Even saving us out of unbelief and the state of deadness that we were in, but if Jesus, which He did, did that upon the cross, then you can see why the Bible says you are complete in Him. His elect are completely and securely and eternally saved and sealed with the very blood of Jesus Christ. And He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? There is nothing that will snatch you away from Christ. What He has given, He will not take back. And what He has procured, He will not return. You are safe and secure in the completed, finished, unalterable, unchangeable work of Jesus Christ. If you are here today, it is because He brought you here. If you are trusting in Him today, it's because He paid for that upon the cross. You are complete in Him. He has promised that if He gave Himself for you, how shall He not also freely give you all things? Life! And life abundantly! That your joy may be full. And yet we fret over small things. Christ said He has given you all things, and we fret over small things. So let us not focus on what we perceive that we do not have, but rather let us rejoice in the powerful provision of Christ and the reality of what we do have. It all comes down to this. If you trust in Jesus Christ and you're following Him faithfully, there's only one reason for it, and that is God's grace. He saved you from your sins and your unbelief and your waywardness. He died with you in mind personally upon the cross, and He went to appease God's wrath so that you will never feel it, know it, or understand it. He left glory that you might have it for eternity. You had no life, but He came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. You were a lost sheep, and He came and He found you. Jesus died for your sins. And you can live forever without fear, for He has done everything already that you need. And how much more will He give you freely, abundantly?
of all things. You can live victoriously. You don't have to live in fear. You can live in the liberty of conscience. You have been set free. And all this He accomplished for you in Jesus. He did not merely make it possible for these conditions to happen. That's what He did upon the cross for you. And now we need to live in the light of that truth and happy we will be. Our gracious Father, we thank You for the atoning work of Jesus Christ. What an astounding work it was and is and will continue to be in our minds as we continue to plummet the depths and the riches all of that love that was poured out upon the cross for us. All of the meaning of the nature of the atonement of what He has done for us. The very personal aspect of calling his, us His sheep. Owning us as His own. Not even ashamed to call us His brethren. As He comes and leads us to glory. How thankful we are that we are complete in Him. Remind us of this. May the Spirit continue to prompt in our minds and our spirit the very truth that there is nothing that we lack in Christ. For He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that we can this day rest in His provision. Because He has paid it all. And if He has done these great eternal provisions upon the cross for us, how much will He freely give us all other things. Lord, we pray that You would encourage us in this truth and grip our hearts with what You have done for us in Christ and what You are continuing to do with the application of that atoning work freshly this day and what You have promised to bring us all the way home tomorrow for the thing that You have begun in us, You will, You have promised, complete it how thankful we are for the promises in which we rest. Strengthen our faith in these things that we would not doubt you. We would not be confused over these matters. Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God would make application to each soul here today to bring the needed encouragement, to provide the grace, to be merciful to us, to know that that Christ has given us all things and that in Him we are complete. Dispel all of the fears and today transcend us above all those earthly things and trials so that we might know that You have gone before us and ordered these very things and we can rest in Your provision. Knowing that You freely give us all things and You have procured us and bought us with the blood of upon the cross, that we might have life and have it abundantly, that our joy may be full. All praise and glory to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, and God our Father and the Holy Spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.